0: We say that we need to have a more realistic view of where Africa wants to go and what Africa wants to be. We cannot pursue an energy transition on a clean energy future, which is based on a vision of Africa, which is not from Africa. G'day folks,
1: and welcome back to Giving What We Can, where we explore how to use our resources to do the most good. Today, we're joined by Lily Odano, who is the Director of Clean Air Task Force's Energy and Climate Innovation Program in Africa. She leads the efforts to address the dual need of expanding affordable energy in developing economies and building a global decarbonized energy system. But before we jump into the interview, I'm joined by my colleague, Grace, and we're gonna just share a few reflections from the interview with Lily. So Grace, welcome. And yeah, what really struck you about the interview with Lily?
2: Well, I think, you know, this is one of my favourite interviews that we've done this year. It really just blew my mind to hear, I guess, about how some of the estimates for, for Africa probably aren't very accurate how the world needs to take into uh, into account Africa's vision for itself um, when thinking about climate policy going forward, um, I think it was just really interesting and a different perspective and it's made me think a lot more about how I could be more inclusive in how I'm thinking about climate change policy.
1: It really struck me, it was pretty crazy to hear that a lot of climate modelling seems to underestimate Africa, assuming much less development and not increasing energy demands, and. Just how people in Africa are like, what the heck? That's not what we want for ourselves. We really want to develop in many ways. And so we need to think about not decarbonizing, but how do we develop without that increase in, in you know, carbon intensive energy?
2: Yeah, and I think Lily talks about this kind of like energy transition as well, which was really quite interesting from my perspective. So. There is an opportunity, I guess, for Africa to do a lot of this growth, but doing it from 100% renewables might not be the best approach. And kind of thinking about how can Africa develop the right technologies to avoid carbon lock-in later, but that still enable growth, uh, I think that's such an interesting thing to think about and it's kind of, I guess, just not the same situations when we're thinking about decarbonising Western countries.
1: And on that, I really like how we think about how the local context matters so much. So, you know, for example, developing the local talent and local solutions that make sense in that region, especially things like thinking about Um, carbon removal as part of the solution, Uh, looking at things outside of wind and solar, things like hot rock geothermal was pretty interesting to learn more about as well.
2: Yeah. And so, I mean, I think the figure there is something like 50% of Kenya's energy at the moment is coming from this super hot rock geothermal energy. Um, So that's really like surprising to me to hear that, you know, 50% of a country's um, energy needs um, in Africa are coming from renewables.
1: Well, not to give away too much, um, but uh, we'll let Lily get to it now. So I hope you guys are going to enjoy this interview with Lily O'Donoghue. Lily, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank
0: you, Luke, for having me.
1: Yeah, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your role at the Clean Air Task Force?
0: My name is Lily Odano. I'm the Director of uh, the Energy and Climate Innovation Program Africa Clean Air Task Force and in my role I'm leading Clean Air Task Force's efforts to reconcile the need to decarbonize a global energy system with the need to make sure that uh, the developed part of this world have a- has access to affordable, reliable, modern energy access.
1: Can you tell us a little bit more about Clean Air Task Force's work more broadly and its role in climate change mitigation?
0: Yes, uh, Clean Air Task Force is. I it's, we characterize it as a non-traditional, facts-based environmental organization, and. We call it non-traditional because it's a clean air task force. I call it CATF uh, sometimes uh, when I speak. Uh, it's approaching the climate problem very, very differently. As you may know, our global energy system is accounting for 70% of the emissions uh, which are warming up our planet. This means that we cannot address climate change unless we radically transform our global energy system. So what we do at Clean Air Task Force every day is thinking through what those critical levers are that we can draw on to be able to drive the transformation in the global energy system that we need to make sure that we are not warming our climate beyond limits that we should.
1: Yeah. And can you tell me more about the role of developing countries in that?
0: Well, so. The Tax Force uh, is recently actually globalizing. Uh, lots of the work, initial work, uh, has been based in the United States. Uh, there was a recent expansion to Europe. But we are going global. Uh, we are now looking at work in the Middle East and North Africa, We're looking at work in Sub-Saharan Africa, which is the work that I lead, and looking at work in parts of Southeast Asia as well. And in Sub-Saharan Africa, which is the work that I lead, and of course the reason why we are going global is that we recognize that we cannot address the transformation in the global energy system that we need if we do not pay attention to what's happening in the develop, developing economies. And why is that so? Because we are going to see the greatest growth in energy demand in these regions. China is already leading. We have India right there leading in, um, following up in, in, in emissions, cumulative emissions. And regions in Africa are going to be growing over the coming decades. So we need to be prepared uh, for the Coming growth in demand from these regions. Otherwise, we are going to be overshooting uh, cumulative emissions. Yeah. Can you uh, tell us about the type
1: of work that is being done there?
0: So, Most of the work that we are doing at Clean Air Task Force, uh, we characterise it as uh, what we are doing to change technology, to change policy, and what you are doing to advance thought leadership. Mm-hmm. And our positioning um, in terms of what we are doing to change technology is really thinking about how we push the lever beyond a lot of the traditional approaches we have. So, what's the dominant thinking around how we transform our energy system today? Um, most of us, most of what we hear is let's let's conserve. Um, how do we improve energy efficiency? And doing that typically with a view that um, developing countries are not going to be consuming much. Uh, so there's this assumption you know, that African countries, for instance, will have very low demand, even looking into the future. We think about electrifying everything. We think about the role of wind uh, plus solar and combining that with batteries. At Clean Air Task Force, we believe that that is only a portion of the solution that we need. Yes, we need energy efficiency. Yes, we need to think about how we electrify. Yes, we need to think about what we do with variable renewables renewable energy sources. But we believe also that we need to think seriously about how we build the base of firm power sources. And when I talk about firm power sources, I'm talking about energy sources which are available 24-7, which you can draw on all the time. We believe that as we work on bringing on clean energy sources, which are mitigating the emissions that we are putting into the atmosphere, we need to be thinking about how we take out the carbon which is already in the atmosphere as well. we think about carbon removal in addition to the in addition to avoiding emissions and in addition to electrification we we realize that not everything can be electrified so you look at marine shipping for instance you can't electrify that so we have to think about other alternative sources of fuel zero carbon fuels and there we are exploring the role of hydrogen of ammonia in transforming uh, the marine shipping industry and We also, as I said, we also continue to advance the role of of renewables of solar and wind. We've just started a program which is trying to look at the land use implications Mm -hmm. of renewable energy sources. So what we do uh, every day is to be bold Mm -hmm. about the options that we are looking at. And we go back and, and question ourselves all the time. Are we doing the right thing? What new information is emerging? Are we asking the right set of questions? With a view that that gives us or puts us in a place that allows us to be able to continually advance the right portfolio of options that we need to be able to address the climate challenge.
1: Yeah. I just want to press in a little bit on what you mentioned about the projections uh, within Africa being uh, that they're not going to increase in demand. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Absolutely. Um, so we've been doing a bit of kind of trying to look a bit deeper into some of the very uh, influential models that we have out there. And uh, uh, some of our analysts have, you know, tried to understand what what are the assumptions which go into the models that put us at, you know, net zero by 2050. And what we realize is that uh, the per capita energy consumption assumed for regions in Africa... Are several orders lower than what you have uh, as OECD averages currently and even looking at 2040 projections. And the reason is that we are expecting to see Africa grow. Population is going to be growing. And so it's actually hard to keep the models in check if you assume that, you know, Africa is going to be growing at, say, OECD levels. Without unleashing the power of the vast range of technology options so that's 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 what we are that's what we are realizing is is hidden in the models but what we want to advance is you know we say that we need to have a more realistic view of where africa wants to go and what africa wants to be Um, we cannot we cannot pursue uh, a an energy transition on a clean energy future, which is based on a vision of Africa, which is not from Africa. So, what do African economies want? If if you look at projections uh, from the African Union, from country level projections, these countries are looking to grow. Mm. They are expecting African size, aspiring to have consumption levels, uh, which are way more than what we have now. The average uh, consumption level um, that goes into some analysis, you have like 500 kilowatt hour per person. That's that's really tiny. It's like lighting two light bulbs in a year. That is not an aspiration for many people. So we be, we believe that we need to get realistic about what that means. It means that we need to challenge the... The the common wisdom out there, we need to bring out new analysis that helps us to have a fairer view of the world in terms of what um, the developing countries are are hoping to be, and what that means for how we should be thinking about the energy systems we are developing in response to the climate problem.
1: Yeah. Amazing. Can you uh, share some of the types of solutions that you're looking into, the different technologies?
0: So we are working, as I said, we are looking at carbon mitigation measures, and we are also looking at, you know, how do we also remove the carbon which is already into, in the atmosphere? Because once carbon is released, it's staying in the atmosphere for a long time. So a wide range of technologies. We have the traditional wind and solar. We have, uh, as I said, this, we are we have work which is looking at the land use implications of that. Uh, super hot rock geothermal technology, looking at uh, advanced how, how can we have geothermal everywhere by mm. drilling even further deeper into uh, Earth's crust. Um, we are looking uh, at advanced nuclear technologies, and we are also mindful and acknowledge the fact that you know, fossil fuel resources will not disappear from our planet you know, tomorrow or even in the next five years. What that means is that we need to be thinking about how we decarbonize the fossil fuel which is being used today. Um, so there we are looking at you know carbon capture, um, where uh, in in places where uh, we have oil and gas companies operational how how do we combine that with the with the use of fossil fuels now i mentioned that we have we are thinking seriously about the transportation sector uh, we recognize that not everything will be electrified so we have a program in zero carbon fuels, which is looking at hydrogen and the role of ammonia as well. And then in terms of uh, industrial processes, uh, what's happening with the oil and gas, we also take a look at uh, the short-lived pollutants, so methane uh, specifically, and how we can reduce methane leaks um, and emissions in the oil and gas industry. So it's a huge portfolio of technology options that we are looking at, and um, we look at that and and think about, you know, what is what do you need by way of policy environment, by way of markets, to be able to build the ecosystem that you need to advance those technologies?
1: Yeah, it's, it's pretty broad. And why do you think a lot of the conversation typically focuses on a narrow range of technology as well as uh, mostly re- reduced consumption?
0: Well I, I think there are I think there are several reasons for that. And um I, I I speak about this a bit and when I do when I talk about this I like to kind of speak a bit through an African lens because Mm -hmm. I think it helps me to contextualize it a bit more I think that in in Europe wind and solar um, have been like key parts of the energy transition Mm -hmm. and in some ways I think that they actually have been drivers of the adoption of this technology even in regions in Africa uh, we have um, huge European presence pushing for the adoption of these technologies so what happens is that whenever we think about it's almost becomes accepted as, you know, without us questioning further what other technologies are, it becomes as what, you know, what we run to when we think about the energy transition. I also think that in a very general sense, um, there's a general lack of understanding of the pros and cons of all technologies. I think that um, we easily see some technologies as greener than others even when we are looking at the entire spectrum of zero-carbon technologies but the reality is that every single technology comes with its pros and cons and we haven't spent too much time weighing what those options mean Within particular context, so it could be that advanced nuclear, it's not an option in one part of Africa. Could it be an option elsewhere? Um, but usually, it's not even part of the conversation at all. Um, uh, I uh, studying and actually working in the environmental space, I have I had never seen some of like I'd never seen anybody mention CCS in the context of Africa. Um, Nuclear was like totally out of the question, like nobody's even thinking about that. It's South Africa that uh, has has had that going for a while. So some of the topics would never even surface in the discussions. Geothermal is not new. Um, Kenya has had historic experience with geothermal for several decades. But the thing is that unless it is top on the agenda in the global discourse, nobody seems to be paying too much attention to it.
1: Yeah. This ties into something you said in your talk that you gave earlier in the weekend, um, that the sources of funding often influence the policy. Can you speak about the impact of that?
0: Absolutely. Um, I, you know, in Africa... A lot. What we see of Africa's energy infrastructure, of Africa's utility systems, has been hugely influenced by the structure of international aid, and um, that that influence still still persists today in terms of what it is that we we are pushing forward. So currently, there's work that um, there's been a lot of German influence, for instance, around um, pushing for utility scale solar. Um, imagine work around hydrogen. So you see, what surfaces on the agenda is can be traced back to who is actually funding it. Even how we structure our utilities is influenced by who is supporting, uh, whether it's utility reform and and all of that. So we th- there's very little chance and opportunity for us to stand back and objectively view what we have and ask the question like, you know, where does Nigeria want to go? Where does Sierra Leone want to go? And what are the energy sources that we need to be able to advance where we think we want to go? Most of the time, countries are caught on the reactive side where solutions are proposed and countries are basically accommodating those solutions, even if those are not necessarily the right options for those countries.
1: You've also spoken about the fact that uh, R&D should be done uh, locally more in Africa. Can you speak more to that and why you think that's important?
0: Yeah, I I'm I'm a huge proponent of that, and um, I really worry uh, that currently so little of uh, the GDPs of African countries goes into research and development, and I think this this became even uh, more clearer to me as we went through the COVID period, um, because. I realized at that time that if you don't have your act together, you are really on your own. And what we saw happen at that time, because there was a global crisis, was that, you know, every country was looking to itself. And uh, African countries were left alone. Uh, There there was not much going on in terms of preparation uh, for vaccine research. Uh, We had to be um, importing PPEs. And I think that Moving out of the of the COVID period, uh, we have an opportunity to, to rethink the role of research and development on the continent and in the energy sector as well. Uh, this is because um, technologies have to be adapted to context and um, it gets problematic if you have technologies dropped onto countries or into regions which are ill-suited for their context. So even as we think about the zero carbon energy technologies that uh, we are working on at, at Clean Air Task Force, we need to be asking ourselves that question. What do the, the engineers in Kenya, uh, what do the geologists in Kenya think about the role of super hot rock geothermal? Can we have some locally incubated research that is looking at these questions? With people who understand the local context, understand the geopolitics of the region, understand what the implications for the social structure is beyond the technology. And I think we are going to be much more successful if we are able to have that kind of locally incubated, um, incubated research efforts. And secondly, the reason why I think it's so important is that We need to create opportunities for African youth. And um, what are they going to do? We have a huge youth population, and I think that we need to be able to engage them in research and development opportunities so that we are channeling those those human resources in the right direction.
1: Yeah. Can you give some examples of both it going really well, um, but also why it's necessary, the examples of it not going so well, where the technology's been just dropped in the wrong context or it doesn't make sense?
0: Personally, I, I have a lot of admiration for what happened uh, with Kenya's geothermal sector. Mm-hmm. I think that um, it's, it's, a, it's a real example of success. It's a real example of a government who, is, who came around to say that, look, we have all these resources in the ground, and we have people who don't have access to energy. Like, How do we tap into that? Currently, over 50% of Kenya's power is coming from geothermal resources. And that's really huge. It's really mm-hmm. significant. And what's impressive there is that they actually have a regional view to it. So, having a regional market, how does that connect to um, their regional neighbors in the East African River Valley? Uh, can we transfer skills in geothermal technology to these other regions? So, I see it as a, a very successful example uh, of um, what happens when things go right. Um, and then Maybe in Kenya, again, I can also give uh, an example of what happens when we, um, when we are not too careful with, with local context. At the same time in Kenya, we recently had the construction of a 300 megawatt plant in Lake Tekana. And um, it's variable renewable energy. So, what that means is that putting that on the grid is destabilizing the grid. Mm-hmm. And the Kenyan government now is having to put a lot of money into stabilizing the Kenyan grid. This is happening in a country where not, not everybody has access to energy. And I'm using that to say that, you know, when we think about um, decarbonizing, a grid in an African context, it's a totally different ball game, because you are looking at infrastructure which may not be as sophisticated as what you may have um, in other parts of the world in the advanced economies. Uh, you are looking at demand profiles which are very different. Demand is still growing. Um, the demand profiles in a lot of advanced economies are quite, quite stable, flat, very predictable. So it's different. And so it's not just a matter of... Uh, transplanting a technology into a context just because it's green. But we need to be able to assess the system as a whole. So in our worker cleaner task force, uh, for instance, we really are paying attention to the utility question. Uh, Where do utilities stand? Uh, What's happening with demand uh, and what's happening with supply? Because we understand that it's not just about making technology available, but you should have the infrastructure in place, you should have the systems the institutions in place to be able to deploy it in a way that helps to drive development.
1: Um, it would be great to hear a little bit more about how some of like the day to day processes uh, work for you at Cleaner Task Force, so working with your policymakers and technologists and researchers and things like that.
0: For the work that I'm needing now, um, we are we are focusing on four things uh, we are looking at um, First of all, like you know, how, how do you build the, the evidence base and change the narrative around energy transitions? What does the alternative narrative look like? So, lots of work focused on on analysis, uh, on modeling. Uh, if we made um, if we made different assumptions of of development in Africa, and put that into you know into an analysis, an analytical piece or a model, what does that look like? Does that provide an alternative? Uh, vision uh, to some of the dominant ideas that we have there. So that's one. And then secondly, on technology innovation, what we are doing specifically is looking at um, an idea of what we call technology innovation hubs and how that that works is working closely with local universities, researchers within African universities, institutions uh, on on exactly some of these technology questions. So um, in Kenya, for instance, there are discussions around the role of hydrogen and uh, whether it would be possible to produce green hydrogen using all the geothermal resources available. What does that mean for Kenya? And um, what analysis can we actually put together to help us understand if this is an option that is going to realize uh development benefits for kenya in the way outside of just exporting um exporting hydrogen to europe or to Mm -hmm. other parts of the world so how do we have that kind of local contextualized research so we can answer questions about what the region needs and then we are doing work with utilities as well i mentioned that um you need to have a well-functioning utility structure, regardless of which technology you are putting on the grid. And um where we are with that is uh, working closely with uh, uh, some experts working in utilities, particularly in Ghana, in Nigeria, Kenya, and in Rwanda, and beginning to ask the question of you know what how could how could utility operations be? improved, Uh, not from an American perspective, but what is it that um, the the utility in Ghana or the utility in Nigeria needs to be able to move to the next level? So it's a lot of uh, engagement with stakeholders on the ground, um, a lot of co-creation of knowledge, um, a lot of, um, I mean, basically going in with as little or zero preconceived ideas <laughs> as you can, because it's amazing what you're able to learn from the ground when you're going to ask objective questions about, about what we what we want to do and where we should go.
1: Mm. Amazing. Um, so are there challenges that you see that are very specific to Africa when it comes to decarbonisation?
0: Yeah, I think that, I mean, in a very fundamental sense, uh, I think that... The, the concept of decarbonisation is, I mean, some African countries don't even identify with that context at all, because the original definition of decarbonization assumes that, you know, you actually have an energy system which is existing, which is not clean, and you are trying to clean that up. Well, in some places, that infrastructure doesn't even exist. So it's like, you know, what, what are we decarbonizing? You know, so I think that um, the the way to think about that is, and which I see as an opportunity, is that if you have countries which are now building their infrastructure, now you have an opportunity to work with them to be able to choose a path that does not um, that does not drive carbon lock in over the long term. So in those contexts, you still have an opportunity to reframe decarbonization to be relevant to how we develop energy infrastructure as we move forward. But it doesn't mean that all African grids are clean. Um, If you look at across Africa, east to west, Africa, north to the south, there are huge differences uh, in what's on the African grid. So South Africa historically has done a lot of coal. So certainly has a very carbon intensive grid uh, in north africa we see the same in west africa there's been uh, a lot of use of thermal power gas so you also see like a fair, a fairly uh, carbon intensive grid. east africa is quite different um, mm-hmm. and basically tends to have a lot more renewable energy resources on the grid so i think that the first thing there is that um, there are differences uh, in. What it means to decarbonize or where we should be thinking about decarbonization across across the continent, and we need to have more targeted efforts which look at which focus on what is needed where. But I think that uh, what is challenging in terms of pursuing decarbonization in Africa is being able to crack that question of, you know, is it energy access or decarbonisation? Yes. And the struggle is, you know, that the narrative is increasingly becoming an either-or narrative. It's like either we decarbonize or we develop, uh, have energy access. But how do we make it a both-end mm-hmm. conversation, which is where I think we should be? And um, the challenge there is that uh, we need uh, to be realistic about the development aspirations of Africa as we think about decarbonisation. You cannot go into a region where people are living in the dark and uh, be telling folks that you need know, what you really need to do today is to uh, is to decarbonize. It's hard for people to grasp that when there are more tangible problems ahead of them. I think that we need the narrative to be sensitive, and we need to be clear that we understand that Africa needs to grow. We understand that it's going to take a process. It's going, not going to be a point event, and we understand uh, that it's going to take time to build that foundation for a clean and. Energy future and that there's not going to be a sacrifice of development and energy access for us to decarbonize.
1: Yeah, can you talk about some of the stakes here, like you know, the impacts, what they will be if we don't get this right? <laughs>
0: and, uh, if we don't get this right, it's going to be really scary. <laughs> I think for me, one of my one of my greatest fears um, when I when I see the increase in polarization of the debates um, mm. is that uh, we are going to have African countries who really decide that look we are not going to be doing anything uh, climate at all. And we are seeing a lot of that narrative build up. Mm. Um, And I think it's for justifiable reason uh, because it's um, it's generally it's being pushed back as, you know, this is a really Western construct. This is something that is being pushed down the throats of Africans to keep us from developing and we don't want to have anything to do with it. And I think that you will have that pushback If you are presenting an alternative to what someone has, which makes them Put in question whether they can continue developing. Mm-hmm. So basically, if um if if I have a if I have a natural gas plant, for instance, which is powering my industries, and uh, you come to me and say, you know, we really need to decarbonize, and we need to think about how we move you from the system, my question to you is, how am I going to keep running my industries? So those are the questions that we should be answering when we are pushing the the energy transition agenda. No wants to feel that they have to let go of their development just to be uh, to respond to um, a climate problem, which you know most African countries also feel they haven't contributed much to. But I think that there's an opportunity when we think about decarbonisation, especially because we are laying the foundation for energy infrastructure in these countries. And that's why the work that Clean Air Task Force is so important, because we need to be able to show that there are firm power options which can provide 24-7 energy for industries to run as they were running on other uh, technologies. It's going to take time. It's not going to happen tomorrow. Uh, But we need to start building the foundation for that. And we need to bring countries along that journey with us that um, it's not going to... We are not taking this and sending you back um, you know, 60 or 70 uh, decades again, mm. backward from where you are. but this is a step forward and that we are committed to making sure that you're not, you not giving up your development for that.
1: Yeah, especially too, because it seems like some of the biggest effects of climate change are going to be in that region.
0: Absolutely. And it's it's uh, we are seeing them already. We are mm. seeing them already. I think um, the last five years, I'll say maybe the last five to 10 years, have really been telling in terms of the impact uh, of climate change in the region. It's been so tangible. Mm. And uh, everybody's beginning to question. You, you can feel that there's something that is not right. Um, just last year, um, the Madagascar was faced with like a huge famine uh, because there had been like a four-year drought, and close to a million people uh, did not have access to food at all. Um, and it was a terrible situation like people even literally started feeding like on on wild on wild plants because it was a terrible situation with um, access to food because of of the droughts and um, I think mozambique for instance has had like serious issues with cyclones i think the biggest in 2019. Thousand people killed, uh, one hundred thousand people displaced. We still have people displaced in Mozambique uh, from that uh, cyclone day and, and the other cyclones which came after. in In East Africa, in the Horn of Africa, we've seen the same landslides, floods. Um, West Africa is has been it's been identified as a as a climate hotspot. Um, so, looking forward, we are expecting to see impact on crops, uh, agricultural yields. And serious implications for food security. Um, it's and everywhere in my country, Ghana, we had like so many floods in the last couple of months. And I mean, the more the poorer you are, the more vulnerable you are to the impacts of climate change because you just do not have both the infrastructure and the institutions to be resilient to the challenges uh, when they come. So, it's I think it's it's it's. Um, it's a challenge and problem. we see that it's happening, but at the same time, there are these other issues you know there's development, there's health, there's um, education, there's um, extreme poverty so how how do we how do we kind of wrap in a solution that takes care of all these aspects?
1: So giving what we can, our focus is on how people can use money uh, to help others in this uh, case. How do you see the role of philanthropy in climate
0: action here? you know I, I think Philanthropy has a huge role to play in climate action. And in Africa, we, have, we haven't we have benefited much uh, from climate philanthropy um, if you consider the scale of the problem and the extent to which the region is is, is being affected. So I think up to 60% of climate philanthropy is currently focused uh, on working there in the US and in the EU. That's a regional problem about, you know, where uh, philanthropy is focused, and I think a refocusing of, of of philanthropy, or maybe an expansion of what philanthropy does, up to pay closer attention to what's happening in the uh, in the developing economies. Is going to be extremely crucial if we are going to be um, able to address the climate challenge. Um, for us as CATF, it's 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 one of the reasons why we are going global because we we realize that uh, we cannot do this uh, if we do not rein in what's happening in the in the developing economies. And I think uh, um, we need climate philanthropy uh, to to follow that that to follow suit and say that you know we we also need to bring along the developing countries as well and I think the second thing is also the what of of uh, what philanthropy supports and um, I think we are at a place where we need uh, to be really ambitious and bold about what the, the options that we are pursuing are for for to address climate change. It's obvious that what we have now just won't make it. We can't conserve our way out of the problem. It's certainly not going to happen. It's obvious that the world is going to need more and not less energy. It's obvious that uh, we are going to need decentralized um, renewable systems in addition to firm power, clean power options. It's obvious that we need all of that. But I I think uh, we need philanthropy to help make it possible for countries, for regions to be able to pursue that's that suite of options and especially in in uh in in africa i've done a lot of work in the region and as i said like i for a long time i never heard anybody talk about ccs in africa even though uh we have um we have huge natural gas reserves on the continent so i think these are some of the things that philanthropy can do, helping to, um, helping organizations who are trying to look at these uh, next frontier technologies to be able to examine them seriously in the developing world context. Because we need to do that if we want to get serious about addressing the climate challenge. So again, just to recap, for philanthropy, I think we would need to see that regional shift. Mm-hmm. And we also need to see a shift in the what that philanthropy supports uh, from a more conservative portfolio to something which is more ambitious. And um, I know that uh, we are already seeing that a cleaner tax force with uh, some of the, uh, the funders who are helping and make po- helping make it possible for us to do the research and be able to do the policy engagement that we are currently doing.
1: So given the trends that you've seen and the things that you've been working on, are you generally optimistic about change or are you a bit worried about where things are heading?
0: Well, I, I remain optimistic about change, and um, I I believe that we can be the change that we want to see, and we can be the change that, that we need to see. And I, I always say that fundamentally, uh, I'm optimistic because now I believe that um, we are beginning to ask the right questions. And that is always a good starting point, an important starting point. Uh, we are now beginning to ask, uh, you know, questions about um, what does it mean, realistically, pragmatically, to. Um, to be able to shift our global energy system and we are beginning to recognize that we need to be thinking about a future when developing where developing countries are actually growing and not shrinking or becoming poorer. So I think that is a good starting point as beginning to ask the right the right set of questions. And I always say that uh, on the on the technological front, um, I feel that we, we, we kind of have the options uh, available. Of course, we have technologies at different, um, at, at different stages of development. Some are more advanced than others. Uh, but at least I think we have ideas about what it is that we need and th- the suite of technologies that we need. A lot of what's left for us to do is to remove the political barriers, to remove the market barriers, to make sure that we have policy environments that are helping us advance those technologies technologies. And I think it's within our part to do it. And I also say that I'm um, seeing um, a growing number of young people getting involved in the climate movement. Um, and I think that is extremely important uh, because they are coming to this with a fresh set of eyes. They are coming to this questioning some of the things which have been worked for a long time. Uh, They are coming to this um, really concerned about what the future holds for them. Mm. Um, And I think that that coming to the question with that view, helps you to put much more energy behind it, and helps you to think about what you really need to do for the future that you will be living in, in a couple of in a couple of decades that your children will be living in in a couple of decades. So I think I think that uh, even though the challenge is daunting, I think the tools that we need are at hand, and um, a lot of what needs to be done really lies within our power to do. A lot of the policy shifts, um, a lot of the, the shifts in the business models are things that are things that we can do, and uh, of course, I think facing the climate challenge with more realism uh, rather than ideology, but being pragmatic about what it is that we need to move forward, and and it gives me hope that um, we can actually be able to avert the impacts of climate change if we act right.
1: Amazing. That's a good sentiment to have. <laughs> um, so just before we wrap up, are there any takeaways that you'd really like our audience to uh, take from this conversation?
0: Yeah, I I think that one of the, perhaps a lesson um, that I have personally learned along the way uh, working in this space um, is that one of the ingredients that we need uh, to be successful with navigating the clean energy transition, it's not its not anything sophisticated. I think we need a lot of humility. Mm. And um, what does that mean? I think that we need the humility uh, to be able to say we are wrong mm. and to be able to turn around uh, when we realize that, you know, What we are doing makes no sense at all. I think we need the humility to accommodate the views of others. We need the humility to uh, think about other parts of the world who have needs which are different from ours. Um, There are people who wake up every day and have to think about what they have to eat, have to think about things that some people in the advanced world really never think about. And um, I think we need the humility to understand and to respect the perspectives of those folks and to understand why they may come to the question of the energy transition the way they do. We may not agree with it, um, but we need to be able to embrace that difference in perspective. I think it's only when we do that that we can have A more reality-based approach uh, to addressing the climate challenge. I think it's only when we do that that we can correct the mistakes that we make as we go on. Because I think I feel that as we go along, we may find that, you know, some of the options are like really bad for us Mm -hmm. and we need to change course. We need the humility to be able to do that. I feel that as we go along, we may find that, you know, there are some really interesting opportunities that we never thought about. We may not be the authors of those. Interesting ideas. We need to be able to embrace them, even when they are coming from you know elsewhere. And uh, we need the humility to also recognize that you know there are there are no foes in this game. That we are all working together towards a common good. Um, one of the things which um, which which unfortunately happens as we uh, as we walk the climate journey is that you know there we seem to have like these bad folks who are the ones who are like emitting. Um, um, all the dirty gases into the atmosphere and then there are the good folks who are also trying to save the planet. But I think that's that's really not not the case. I think that there's even something to be learned from some of the industries and the sectors uh, who have historically been responsible for driving some of the emissions. And some of them can actually be sources of solutions if we partner with them to try to address this problem. So that's really what I would leave with us, mm-hmm. that you know, um, this is a complex problem. Um, it's not going to be solved by one person or one region alone. And we need the humility to be able to approach it as such.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I'm very glad to have you and the team at CATF working on some of those solutions.
0: Thank you so much, Luke, and yes. thanks for having me. I just want to say thanks to Given What We Can and um, other funders uh, of CATF. You make the work that we do possible, and um, I think that it's important that you recognise um, that you really are making an impact uh, in the lives of many through the work that you enable us to do at CATF. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you. Keep up the great work.
0: Thank you. <laughs>